Welcome to Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts in a variety of fields to uncover the systems and patterns that help us to conceptualize and reconceptualize our world. I'm Julie Stern, founder of Education to Save the World and co-author of Learning That Transfers, Designing Curriculum for a Changing World. And I'm Trevor Elio, English Language Arts Specialist at Ed to Save the World and co-author of Learning That Transfers. This podcast uses our mental model as a sense-making tool through acquiring, connecting, and transferring conceptual relationships to unlock new situations. Our guests identify three to five concepts at the heart of their field, and we discuss how those concepts play out in a variety of settings. We hope this podcast will inspire teachers and students to design creative solutions to complex problems and accelerate innovation in today's schools. You can find out more about our work at edtosavetheworld.com. Today's episode will be an exploration of reading, writing, and thinking rhetorically with author and professor Jennifer Fletcher. Jennifer's work as a high school English teacher, college professor, and chair of California State's University Expository Writing Curriculum speaks to her broad experience with and deep understanding of the discipline. Both her research and books focus on the power of rhetorical thinking to encourage students to transfer the understanding to new texts and situations. Joining me this week is language acquisition lead, Aaron Leninger. So can you share some of your top takeaways from today's episode? Thanks, Trevor. I would say my top takeaway was a thread that ran throughout the conversation, which was that rhetorical writing is like this perfect blending of academic and real world work. Teaching students how to write is a highly academic undertaking. However, when we use an assets-based approach and honor the knowledge and skills that all learners bring with them, when we allow students to identify authentic real-world audiences, and when we emphasize reflection and metacognition so that students notice their learning and can assess their own ability to transfer, then the academic work becomes the real-world work. That is beautifully said. And as listeners can probably already tell, this episode is going to be chock full of insight about the role, purpose, and function of transfer in fostering agile, confident writers. One of the, the challenges and the like, the really wonderful and exciting things about transfer is that it's, it's so forward-looking, but also backward-looking, that it, it values what students are bringing with them. But it's also looking ahead to a time when like we as teachers are not going to be there with our students to like check in and see how they're doing, right? So it's, it's also um, so much about agency and independence. It's, it's what can students do? What, if, what do they know how to do? What are their problem-solving skills when they're on their own? If you're looking for an episode that's all about fostering autonomy and agency in your composition classroom, you've come to the right place. Enjoy. This week, Aaron Leninger will be joining me as we talk about all things transfer and rhetoric related with professor and author Jennifer Fletcher. So Jennifer, I know you have a book due out soon from Stenhouse Publishing. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about it to kick things off and whet our appetites? Sure. So the book is called Writing Rhetorically. Um, and the goal of the book is to support students in becoming effective communicators and problem solvers who can transfer their learning to new tasks and context. And the way to do this, I argue, is by taking a rhetorical approach to writing instruction that lets students make their own choices as writers and thinkers. That the more choices students make, the more knowledge they build of how writing works. And especially conceptual knowledge and procedural knowledge, that critical knowledge needed to adapt to new situations. So could you talk to us a little bit about your rationale for really centering and anchoring this transferable teaching around the concept of rhetoric? I think that, you know, for some folks, the, the word rhetoric harkens, you know, men in togas debating in a forum, but really uh, rhetorical thinking is all around us every single day. We all do it. It's just sort of uh, invisible to us in, in many cases. So could you talk a little bit about why you really want to bring that word and concept to the surface of your work? Yeah, I, I tend to talk about rhetorical thinking or rhetorical problem solving more than just classical rhetoric, it, precisely for that reason, that, that this is really like timely and current and responsive. It's, it's a very exciting way to help students develop situational awareness and responsiveness, which, which is exactly what you need for transfer of learning, right? Transfer is all about 
you know, compare and contrast context. What's similar? What's different? Who are the people involved? What do they care about? Like, how do they do their work in this situation? And how do they talk about their work in this situation? So the, the big ideas in rhetoric, key concepts like audience and purpose and genre that are part of the rhetorical situation are those, those are exactly the ideas that are needed to figure out how to appropriately adapt and apply learning, including the way that you write in new situations. I love that idea of tending to the flexible and fluid context that we all need to be thinking about, whether we are in the classroom, whether we're in a professional space, a civic space or a social space, um, and really thinking about you know, who is our audience and then what sort of choices do I need to make in order to effectively communicate. Because one of the things that we talk about in our book when it comes to teaching for a transfer is the notion that we live in incredibly complex times where we need to be able to interact with people in different cultures, different contexts, um, using different mediums and modes. And it's really about being flexible and dynamic with the way that we think about communication and not just there being one correct or right way to communicate. So can you talk a little bit about some of the, the tools and strategies and ideas that you are exploring in your work that help educators reframe what they see as communication and rhetoric to being something that's dynamic and flexible as opposed to something that is static and fixed? It, it is a reframing. And what you were talking about with the flexibility and the, the fluidity, you know, like a, um, you know, a formulaic or kind of one size fits all approach only works if you think the world is never going to change, right? Or if you think you're just going to keep doing work like you've already done in school. Um, and yet, because of a lot of the pressures that we face in K-12 education, including like high stakes tests, um, you know, we, we tend to fall into a lot of short-term thinking where we're looking at, okay, how do I kind of finish this assignment with my students as quickly and efficiently as possible? Or how do I kind of accelerate um, that path to proficiency for my students so that they're all doing well on this year's test, but not really looking at like where they're going next or what's happening in their other classes or, or what students have done before and like how to help them leverage their learning. Like a lot of that can feel like extras, right? Because it's not necessarily on, on the test that, that many schools are using. Um, but you know, the, the, one of the, the challenges and the, like the really wonderful and exciting things about transfer is that it's, it's so forward-looking, but also backward-looking, that it, it values what students are bringing with them. But it's also looking ahead to a time when like, we as teachers are not going to be there <laughs> with our students to like, check in and see how they're doing, right? So it's, it's also um, so much about agency and independence. It's, it's what can students do? What, it, what do they know how to do? What are their problem-solving skills when they're on their own in a new situation? They're on a new job, they're in a college class for the first time, and there's no one to kind of tell them step-by-step, step, here you do this, or, or you're writing an essay, and here's the outline to follow, or the template to fill in. So the, the kinds of strategies that I try to share in the book are a lot of those kinds of um, in, uh, inquiry-based strategies. It's the investigative work or the detective work. Like, how do you assess a new rhetorical situation or you've got to make this thing? Like, what's your process for designing and producing something that you've never made before? You know, well, you, you study models, you look at mentors, you analyze the mentors, you know, you build a prototype, you try it out on a focus group, uh, you find out maybe that it doesn't work. So you go out and, you know, you revise and you rebuild and um, you know, it's, it, and all of that takes a lot of time, but that's the pathway to deeper learning and independence that I'm, I'm really aiming for um, in my book, Writing Rhetorically. Yeah, that reminds me of, of something that you do talk about in your book. What you said is, you said what novices do as novices is not wrong. It's expected. And I really love that idea of, you know, moving from that what you know we're teaching novices from where they're at and like you said valuing where they're coming from but also as an expert teacher you know those mistakes or those misconceptions that students are going to bring as novices and you can then provide those scaffolding and those activities to coach them up 
to, you know, move them along that learning spectrum. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about how, how as an expert teacher, you can help move novice students along that learning continuum. Yeah, what, um, you know, we, we can't avoid being a novice, right? We're, we're all going <laughs> to begin at the beginning, which means mm -hmm. we're, we're going to make those kind of beginner moves that are just typical of the, the, the growing curve. Um, and so one of the things that I think we can do to teach toward expertise or, or kind of scaffold for independence is to scaffold the process, not the product. So, so keep your eye on that goal down the road. Like what are the inquiry skills? What are the, um, the research methods or what are the kind of design, you know, thinking abilities? Like what is it that you want students to know how to do in terms of process? What big concepts do you want them to understand so they understand how to change the process as the situation warrants? Um, and then how do you, you know, as you were saying, coach them up, how, how do you really situate those learning goals within that full continuum from novice to expert? So it's, you know, we, we may not get to something that looks exactly like expertise, you know, in K-12 or in college, or, you know, there are all kinds of areas in my life where, um, I'm going to be a novice for a long, long time, but, but I, I at least want to set myself on the path to learning more. And I want my framing to be for transfer and to be for expertise rather than just to get the assignment done. And so, you know, it, in my work that I do, which is on reading and writing, um, scaffolding for um, inquiry might look like, you know, teaching students ways to identify a question at issue for themselves rather than picking a question and saying, okay, everybody has to respond to this question, whether you think it's meaningful or not, whether it's, you know, currently relevant to your lives or, or to some, you know, authentic conversations in the world, but teach like the listening and the investigative skills so that they know, like, if they go into a college class where um, the professor is not giving them a prompt, you know, the, the prompt yeah. is, uh, you know, write a, a paper on, um, you know, water um, issues in Monterey County. And they're like, wait, I don't know what the issues are. So how do you <laughs> listen to the conversation and find out what the issues are? And so we want to scaffold that kind of brain work rather than, okay, here's an outline for every section of that paper. Just, you know, follow these directions and the essay will practically write itself. And that brings up some of the points that you raised in a blog of yours that I read recently about over scaffolding. And I can definitely see in my, you know, practice as an early teacher and some when I was doing my student teaching, where it's very easy to fall into the trap of spoon feeding students to the point where they can produce a product, but they haven't developed any sense of expertise or conceptual understanding. And it's the illusion of progress and growth without developing um, the actual ability to produce it again, to transfer it to other situations. So I love that you are bringing in that language of thinking about novices and thinking about um, expertise and kind of drawing a through line to what you were saying earlier, taking the time to build students' conceptual understanding, which is a little bit slower, but ultimately is the only way that you can move them towards being able to investigate those contexts and look for those questions. And it's really about fostering a, like an orientation towards investigation and design and thinking deeply about themselves and their world. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of being able to be a lurker and to notice the different communicative norms of different discourse communities? Yeah. And I, so like one of the things that I'll do with my students is um, have them compare um, different texts written by the same writer for different situations and say, and, mm. you know, just those big, like, what do you notice? Um, and, and dig into the choices and, and, you know, work to discover a sense of where those choices are coming from and also how those choices impact audience or reader experience. Um, because if students have experienced more of kind of a, a rule-driven or prescriptive or formulaic approach, you know, they might encounter a piece of writing that doesn't follow the rules and think, oh, wait a minute, this is, this is bad writing, right? You know, it's, <laughs> it's using first person I in, in, in an academic text. And I was told like, I should never do that. Um, but if 
students start with an open mind and just, you know, look at, you know, what do you notice about the text? How is this text doing its work? And maybe what clues can you figure out about like the audience or the setting or the sense of um, like, what's the unmet need or problem that the writer is trying to address? Um, that really kind of breaks open that formulaic approach so that students don't feel like, um, you know, the, the teacher's the only one who knows how this has to be written and they just have to follow the directions to kind of get the A. I, I think it's really important, you were talking about, um, again, the, the continuum from novice to expert. You know, if we know that novices start by imitating the moves of experts without really understanding like what's going on behind those moves, the reasons for the moves, um, and, or, or that novices will um, oversimplify a task, right? The oversimplification is the novice's survival strategy. And again, we all do that. Like we, we fake it till we make it, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, when you pair those kinds of introductory moves with work on concept development, and, and this is what I've so appreciated uh, about your work with learning that transfers, you know, part of the framing for transfer or setting students up to expect that, you know, you're learning something here that you're gonna use in other situations, but you're gonna have to change it up for those new situations because it, the, the contexts are not going to be exactly the same. That um, part of framing for transfer is doing the deep conceptual work. And so that, um, you know, if, if students understand um, the importance of how, you know, particular communities or, or what, you know, we would call discourse communities um, use shared language conventions. And, and those language conventions change over time, which is another reason you have to keep paying attention because the way a group was talking, you know, 10 years ago is probably not the way they're talking right now. If they can pay attention to those conventions or if they know about genres and they can do um, genre feature analysis and think about the functions of those features and how genres are, are a way for a community to do its work together. Um, then if they've got a scaffold, like say sentence templates or even an outline um, or they're modeling, they're doing a mentor text, like you can do kind of lurker work or inquiry work <laughs> with something like sentence frames because the sentence frames at that point are not, okay, just fill these in to complete the assignment. It's like, oh, these sentence frames are models of those kinds of academic moves. And they have clues about audience expectations and values. And they tell you something about how the genre features work. But if you don't have the concepts, if you don't understand like audience and genre, then the frames just seem like another step to complete on the assignment. Yeah, I love that part um, where you talk about scaffolds as an ESL teacher. You know, we use language, academic language scaffolds all the time. And so I was really interested in reading your thinking around appropriate scaffolds to use, that there are scaffolds that do the thinking for the students and are very formulaic, but then there's also scaffolds that we can intentionally use. Uh, and you say like to practice academic language, to model expert thinking, um, and to establish clear expectations for academic writing that using scaffolds for those purposes in intentional ways help do that, you know, coaching up for students rather than um, doing the work for them. So I, I loved what you were saying about scaffolds and, and the, the ways that it's not all good or bad. There are, you know, being intentional about the types of scaffolds you use can be really important. Well, and I know learning that transfer speaks about this with the, you know, thinking about where the cognitive load is. Like if you, if you give students like total free reign, you're, you're going to make this thing and, you know, you, you're 14, but you're going to make every choice there is to make, you know, in this rhetorical situation that can be really overwhelming. Um, and so thinking about, you know, where the instructional focus is and how to frame that for transfer and, and how, you know, where students are on that progression from novice to expert. You know, I've really appreciated that in your work. And something else that I kind of got my brain spinning a little bit and that we talked about a little bit in the course was how when you have students transferring their understanding of, you know, these, these more academic ways of writing, but they begin writing about content where they do have expertise, you can kind of complicate that relationship of who's the expert in this context and who's the novice. 
Um, I know that I did a assignment where we looked at writing claims, evidence, uh, reasoning, and counterclaims for an academic essay, and we sort of like looked at, you know, what are the academic norms for how, you know, uh, literary scholars would talk about writing uh, a piece of criticism, and then we transferred and did a cultural criticism blog where my students are reading bloggers and talking about things like manga and um, gossip girls, things where I was very much the novice and they knew the type of language to use. They knew the types of cues and communication norms of that community, but they were then able to bring their understanding of academic writing and sort of fuse those things together. So can you talk a little bit about how, I think that kind of goes back to that notion of agility and audience. So can, can you talk a little bit about how centering transfer allows students to think about academic writing in, in my experience in, in a more in a more clear way. Because it's not just these invisible rules that are made up. Oh, these are the community norms. And those changed based on the community. So just talk a little bit about um, that that notion of agility and how students begin to see those patterns outside of the classroom as well. I, I love the word agility. I know um Vershan Ashanti Young talks about um rhetorical and linguistic dexterity. And that's, that's, you know, what I hear you describing and that, um, you know, I think transfer facilitates that beautifully because you, you've got your eye kind of looking at all these different scenarios. You're looking like ahead in time, you're looking back in time. So you, you are embracing like multiple perspectives, like multiple, um, like even time periods and thinking about, okay, I'm going to, tweak it and tweak it and tweak it. I can do this here. I can also do that here, but I can't do that here. So I'm going to do this here. And then the other thing is that, you know, when you add to that understanding about, you know, so components of a rhetorical situation are dynamic and interrelated, then when you see how those conventions and practices change over time too. So not just changing like laterally, from setting to setting, it's different from home, it's different in school, it's different in the workplace environment or different in social science from English language arts. But also, you know, again, it was different 20 years ago. It was different 40 years ago. It's gonna be different the way things are changing now, like next year. So um, that kind of the, the agility needed to manage all those kinds of communication contexts is tremendous. Um, and I think this is where we do students a real disservice if we're not teaching toward a notion of transfer that includes that kind of adeptness with, with adapting to so many different kinds of contingencies. You know, again, novices tend to do just that kind of surface level imitation. And so if a novice is looking at, okay, when I write for an academic setting, I'm supposed to use academic English it looks like this, <laughs> I use these transitions, I use these kinds of topic sentences, I introduce my evidence this way, I, I present my own kind of voice this way. If, if they don't move past that surface understanding of thinking that like my whole ethos, which is an, another rhetorical concept, right? That idea of your image, um, my whole ethos comes from using academic language. That's what makes me credible then they're not as likely to see like when those conventions change or to recognize like one of the moves that they can make as an academic writer in scholarly conversations is to push back on the conventions and be disruptive. And like Trevor, what you were saying about like the deep content knowledge when students are experts on the subject matter, because it's something that they've researched extensively or it's, it's, a, it's a passion project for them. So they can speak with like total confidence and authority because they, like, they know this stuff cold, like without notes. Um, that's another way of constructing their ethos. And so, so you see how the components are interrelated. It's like, I'm, I'm so good at this, like I'm not gonna use academic English and I'm gonna get you to change how you view what you see as persuasive academic discourse. And, and that aligns with uh, Elizabeth Moji's work on disciplinary literacy, which is the idea that students need to have access to those sort of like disciplinary norms in order to enter into the places and spaces that allow them to challenge, change, and evolve them too. 
And I think that that it's something it's really beautiful of, you know, helping students sort of see those norms and conventions, but then also giving them opportunities to bring in their own, you know, knowledge, their own discourses, their own ways of, of thinking and, and communicating. And it's really about mixing and remixing as opposed to simply replicating. And again, deep conceptual knowledge in different fields and domains, that's that Medici intersection. Yeah, Trevor, I mean, what, what you're saying there too is like, you know, what Jennifer was saying in her book around at the asset-based approach, you know, and you write, yes. you know, students perceive that their prior learning and experiences like their home language and their culture are not valued or relevant in higher ed or in the world outside of school, um, then they may revert to waiting for an instructor to tell them the new rules of the game rather than looking for opportunities to make their own intellectual connections. And I love that. Like if we're training students to do what we tell them to, then how can we expect them to uh, look for opportunities to do, to make their own decisions. Um, and so like you write, we want students, like it's what you're just saying, Trevor, to reconceptualize and repurpose their education, not relearn it. And I just love that mm. idea of, you know, taking what experiences and knowledge students have and expertise and helping them, like you're saying, Jennifer, training them to look for those patterns and uncover um, the, the changes that are happening so that they can then make their own their own decisions. So I, I guess maybe if you could talk a little bit about how how you do that or how we can help teachers do that better. Yeah, we, we don't want to create obstacles to transfer, right? We don't we don't want to make like the high school to college transition more difficult than it already is. It's already pretty challenging. <laughs> um, so some things that can create obstacles um, like Aaron, as you're noticing, noting, like the, the, a deficit-based approach, right? Because if you are viewing students as being lacking and having deficits that get in the way of their learning or that need to be remediated, you've just blocked out a whole world of transfer opportunities. So all that rich cultural, social, linguistic knowledge that's, that's waiting there, you know, as resources to be leveraged. And that's, you know, transfer and rhetoric or rhetorical thinking kind of have this in common. Like you're, you're looking like, what do I have to work with? Like, what's my stuff? I'm going to make something here. Like, let me see what my stuff is. So the stuff mm -hmm. is what you bring with you. So, so that's one way we can interfere with transfer. Um, another one is that kind of prescriptive approach where, you know, your students are learning, always do it this way or never do it this way. You know, follow these rules. This is correct. This is incorrect and presented in a way where it's decontextualized. So students aren't learning to compare and contrast contexts. Um, they're certainly not thinking about their own opportunities to challenge, change, and evolve disciplinary understanding. They're, they're you know, learning the rules of school in order to be you know, successful within a, a, a very limited kind of domain. So in, instead of doing that, you know, doing things like developing a mindset for connection making, you know, going heavy on reflection and metacognition, you know, asking students, you know, what do you know? And, and what did you do? Like you did this thing, you, you wrote, um, you know, a summary of, you know, an article that you read. So how did you do that? How did you actually figure out what you thought was the main idea and what were some supporting claims? Um, oh, and that's interesting. Like your main idea is different from your peers' main idea, and it's different from what this group said the main idea is. So let's talk about this. Your, your processes are different. What conclusions can you draw from the fact that, you know, even your, your summaries are showing this kind of interesting variation rather than, um, you know, here's kind of the answer key. And that's the only thing that we're, we're really aiming for. I'm also kind of wondering how much of your I guess, impetus for thinking and reframing students learning around transfer and thinking about, you know, more rhetorical style frames is coming from the students and writers that showed up in your first year college um, composition classes. I know that uh, John Warner talks about um, in some of his work that students, uh, again, are, are expecting to be told exactly what to write, how to write, when to write, what norms they should develop. And it's really something that uh, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, as I'm in, as a middle school and high school teacher, is how can I prepare students for the, the exam that they have to take at the end of the year? Yes, but also for the world 
beyond school because the grammar of schooling I've noticed does kind of stop, uh, cease once they hit higher education in many contexts where like those sort of like the, the academic games and the, and the templates and the models that worked in high school don't really cut the mustard in university courses. So could you talk a little bit about how maybe your straddling of worlds helped forge this understanding and, and bring out this framing? Yeah, I've, I've shared that um, I, I felt like being a high school teacher, and I was a high school teacher for over 10 years, uh, can sometimes feel like you um, only get to read the second book in a trilogy, like you don't know the backstory <laughs> and you don't know what happens next. Um, but, but the year that I moved from teaching at Buena Park High School in Southern California to uh, Cal State Monterey Bay, um, like I was living the life that like first year students were living where like, I've got to get my parking permit and like find like the spot for my coffee and like where I'm <laughs> going to do my reading and I'm lost and all of that. Um, and so that was definitely part of what made like made me feel the experience of transfer more viscerally. But, but in all my years teaching high school, because I taught 9, 10, 11, 12, and then at my current university, because we're such a small university, we only have like 7,600 students, I teach, um, I, I teach first year students, second year students, juniors, seniors. Um, I have students at the junior senior level, like multiple times in the same courses. So I'm, I'm kind of constantly doing that, that groundhog day thing of, wait, like we learned this before. <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm, the, I'm the one who taught it to you. I was there, I thought I did and you're not doing it anymore. So what's up with that? Um, and so, I mean that, and I'm still, that's still like where I'm learning and, and struggling and that. And again, it was why I like learning that transfer so much because your work is helping me see, oh, it's the like more review, more refining, and more opportunities, not just for students to reflect and practice metacognition, but to assess their own ability to transfer their learning. Um, but I will say, like at my university, um, we, we don't have an English department. So I'm in an interdisciplinary humanities major. We have a thriving undergraduate research program um, where students have the opportunity to um, do research with professors, to do poster sessions at undergraduate research conferences, to um, co-author articles. Um, we have um, both lower division and upper division service learning. We have a capstone project with um, community-based projects and internships. And so like the idea of this is authentic academic work. Um, it is real world academic work. Like this is what school looks like from my perspective when when it is you know grounded in like real exigencies for students you know the real needs or problems that they they truly care about so i think it's 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 been that vision of like what a, an integrative approach to learning and an interdisciplinary and kind of transfer oriented approach to learning looks like when it works well that has inspired me even more to teach for transfer. And I'll, I'll just say quickly too, like within in my own state university system and we're, we're the largest public university system in the nation, like we have shifted our focus from just um, college access to college success. So we're really looking mm. at degree completion. We have taken a hard look at our retention rates, you know, nationally it's something like half of undergrads leave without earning a degree and wow. many of them are leaving after having incurred student debt uh, which mm. is unconscionable so so thinking about transfer means it's not just okay what do these students need in high school to be ready for you know entry-level college courses or or for a job or for the service or whatever's coming next but what do they need even like five years down the road so they've started on that post-secondary yeah. journey. We want to get them over the finish line. Wow. I mean, the, what you just said about real world academic work, you know, we have on our spectrum, we've got academic to real world and we've got similar to dissimilar that transfer. But like you just 
kind of blew my mind there when you're talking about real world academic work, because that's a thing too, right? So we talk about it on that spectrum, but actually there is a convergence of those two things in the university world for students. I mean, that is real world academic work that they're doing. Um, so I, I love that you talk about that in the sense of preparing students to be successful in college, not just to get there. That's really, yeah, I love that idea. I also was having a conversation with a student this year kind of about that tension between, you know, that framing of academic and real world. And they asked me, I had a student who asked me, um, well, you know, Ms. Relio, if, if we're, you're preparing us for the real world, why, why are we learning these academic communication norms and how to write these essays and stuff? And um, it, it, was, it was a great question. And one of the things that, I, that kind of just came out as we were having the conversation was um, there aren't many other contexts where you can have as part of your disciplinary work, especially in the humanities and interdisciplinary humanities course nonetheless, where you can talk about like what it means to be a, a human, where one can find a sense of purpose and meaning. And I have found that my students, when they're engaging in that sort of like academic conversation about incredibly human things, are when they they sort of spark up the most. Because in our in our sort of modern communication and social media ecology, there's not a lot of, there's a lot more surface than substance, I think, to public conversation. So um, it, it's, it's I uh, kind of building on what you're saying, Aaron, I love that idea of finding that heart between those two things where, you know, sometimes the purpose of learning is for its own academic sake, because the disciplines give us context and opportunities and norms to have conversations about things that, you know, maybe don't have a market purpose, but have a deeply and intimately human one. And um, that kind of, bleeds into the human experience concepts that we talk about and frame up in learning that transfers too. So Jennifer, do you kind of want to build on that idea a little bit of like bringing in some of those um, humanities oriented concepts? Yeah. So like in our, our major, our students learn methods of humanistic inquiry. So that includes um, like um, critical um, and effective communication or um, creative expression or um, historical analysis. And so because students are applying their learning through uh, like service learning projects, so like my students are, are out there, they're tutoring in schools or they're teaching creative writing lessons to incarcerated youth, um, or we have internships for our pre-law students who are doing um, translation work at local legal offices. Um, you know, th there isn't that kind of divide between this is like, this is purely academic and intellectual, but that it's, it's always about um, concrete applications. It's always about addressing, um, starting with the community where we're, we're um, in the uh, Salinas Valley. Uh, so this is, you know, John Steinbeck country. This is the, the, the world salad bowl. Um, it, and so it's about taking those kinds of um, ways of doing inquiry with a focus on these humanistic traditions so that, you know, if you are serving, you know, you're doing your, your civic work, evaluating um, local community grants for um, different ways to provide emergency services or different ways to address food insecurity or you know how are you going to make connections between farmers and um, local restaurants and food banks um, and our, our campus um, catering services and meals on wheels you know it's you if you're bringing diverse stakeholders together to try to solve a concrete problem um, you need those kinds of um, humanistic habits of mind. And I would see this as rhetorical too, that again, the open-minded, you know, listening, you, you want to understand the problem before you, you, you take a stand on it. So, mm -hmm. you know, listen before you, or understand before you argue, but then also like the, the facilitation skills, the dialogue skills. So you've got a bunch of different perspectives in a room. They, they have this shared question at issue. So something is at issue when people are talking about it together, um, but they have different answers. They have a shared sense of exigence or a problem. Um, and it's, it's going to take a, a lot of that humanities and communication education to, to get to an effective and ethical solution. 
And that is really plugging into something that um, Dustin and Susie Irdash at Global ESD, which is one of our sort of like partner groups talk about, which is like the science about things like climate change is, is pretty clear. What's the challenge is how do we communicate with people to help them, you know, realize that action needs to be taken and how do we come up with policy solutions that turn into effective action. And um, this idea of, of communication and that those humanistic sort of modes of inquiry and, and conversation are so vital. So could you talk a little bit about, and you, you spoke to this earlier, um, this notion that it's not just transferring across different communities, but it's also the way that we communicate. Yeah, I had just a total light bulb moment when I listened to a talk given by Tim White, who is a, um, he was a, a biology PhD student at Stanford when he gave this presentation at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And he was talking about ocean fisheries and um, shark preservation. Um, and my children were there at that time. I think they were in elementary school. They were completely fascinated. The adults in the audience were completely fascinated. He had really cool pictures of sharks. And I thought, wow, th this guy is good. So I asked him to come in and speak to my class of first year writing students at the college. Um, and I also, in preparation for that, started looking at some of his academic publications. And, you know, these are, this is, again, Stanford PhD student that tells you a lot about, you know, the, the kind of preparation that he had. And so, you know, my students and I are looking through abstracts and we're looking through footnotes and we're looking through numerical data and, and kind of studying where he's coming from. And he comes in and does this fantastic talk. And he shared also some like magazine articles and blogs that he had written to, to get his work out to a wider audience. And so he did such a masterful demonstration of that rhetorical agility, that adaptability mm -hmm. that you were talking about. And I, I said something like, you know, <laughs> like, like you're modeling, like what we're trying to, like, this is the whole purpose of the class, right? A first year um, writing class at a university is all about um, preparing students to adapt for all these different communication contexts. And, you know, I kind of said something like, you know, um, you know, you're so good at this. Like, you know, why, why was it important for you to become such a good writer as well as a researcher? And he said something like, um, like, if I don't do this storytelling work, then really cool animals like reef sharks and coconut crabs won't have a seat at the table. Wow. And I was just like, wow, that's what it is. Like, like that he's got, you know, he's there to tell their story. So he better be really good at getting a whole lot of people interested in coconut crabs and reef sharks. Well, just one thing, Trevor, as you're thinking is like, you know, so many of the conceptually speaking episodes come back to this concept of story and what you, your story about Tim really illustrates, he has learned to tell a story, but in different, you know, discourses for different audiences, um, but for the same, you know, ultimately the same purpose, but kind of getting people hooked in different ways that, you know, address where they might be coming from or their interests or, um, you know, they're hooking them where they're, they're at. Yet he is from this very, you know, like you said, highly academic research-based perspective, but he's learned that agility um, so that he can be effective in, in his work and his goals. So that's just that, that ability to tell different stories in different contexts, but with the same goal, um, like you said, is I mean, I can see how that was a light bulb moment for you because that's just really an amazing story. Yeah, that's the transdisciplinary skill. Like in, in our interdisciplinary major, storytelling is what connects philosophy, history, gender studies, ethnic studies, legal studies, literature, writing and rhetoric, journalism and, and media. We all tell stories. Mm -hmm. So that brings me back to the, the thought that um, I got stuck on before, which is, do you experience students who maybe are very successful and adept at producing those like sort of formulaic, more 
uh, styles of writing that have, you know, got them the grade that they need for the test that they were taking. Um, and now you're encouraging them to play with new dynamic and different forms. Because on um, one of our previous episodes, we spoke with Angela Stockman. And one of her points was that, you know, she had students who are, are you know, incredible writers in a very limited context. So could you talk a little bit about um, the importance of challenging students, even who are really adept, maybe academic writers? Yes, and I would say that because of changes in higher education as well, it's, it's more important than ever that mm. students are adaptive, that they're reflective, that they can assess their own needs as learners. Uh, my university system and many universities across the country, and I imagine around the world, have eliminated um, remedial or developmental English and math classes. Um, there are no pre-baccalaureate level um, classes in my university system anymore. So in the old days, when we used to have an English placement test um, that had an essay that, you know, kind of rewarded five paragraph essays, and then mm -hmm. students would come into their freshman comp class and would write kind of more academic essays that kind of looked, you know, like that form. Um, you know, they, they did okay with that. And it often wasn't until they got into other courses in general ed or up into the major there, where it's like, wait a minute, I'm not writing that English essay anymore. Like now what? And so, we, you know, we're, we're trying to start with the rhetorical thinking and the genre analysis and awareness much earlier. But I'll say that like what I've noticed since my university has made that shift and, um, we use now, many of us, a student journal as our course reader. It, I have Ooh. a brilliant colleague, Dr. Kelly Medina Lopez, who founded a, a student publication. She has student editors running this. Um, and so the, the student articles, and they, they can be creative works. They can be memoir. They can be researched argument essays. Um, they become the mentor text and the reading material for other students who then wow produce their own work to be submitted for publication consideration. Um, so, you know, that, that whole landscape has kind of changed. But before we were there, I would notice I, when I was still doing like a lot of kind of more traditional research papers, but not nearly enough inquiry to, to support, you know, the, the deep learning I wanted, you know, that's when I was dealing with more, you know, either plagiarism um, or mm -hmm. um, kind of inauthentic stances, you mm -hmm. know, students kind of, you know, making a, a claim just for the sake of finishing the assignment. Um, and then when um, we eliminated those classes and we were doing more things like, you know, film speeches and photo essays and podcasts, you know, I had students in my classes who were like professional YouTubers. Like they were yeah. masterful. They were so good. And I just kind of thought, wow, you know, I wouldn't have seen that before, right? I wasn't giving those kind those the, the professional YouTubers did not have a chance, you know, in my classes 10 years ago to show what they could do. Yeah. I mean, you talk about what we what society or considers good writing is, you know, socially constructed anyway, right? And I feel like I was a product of that. Okay, let's learn the five paragraph essay. I learned it in seventh grade, you know, and I was like, <laughs> boom, I can do this. And I know I had friends who were still struggling to learn that. And I felt like because students and my peers were still learning that, that teachers felt they had to keep focusing on that until students learned that form. And mm. it was like, oh, we don't have time to do creative writing because we need to teach this very academic um, five paragraph style writing. But that, I mean, I think that I learned how to write better once I got into college when I had professors say, well, what, what do you want to write about? You know, and I was like, like you were saying earlier, well, tell me what to write. And it wasn't until because I was taught that what was valued was this five paragraph essay respond to a prompt, you know. And so it was just a shame that it took me to college where I was like, oh, I think I know how to write because I can do what the teachers are asking me to do. But it was never put to me like, well, what choices are you going to make? Or, you know, the, the rhetorical part of learning how to write was never a part of our curriculum. So I just really think that what you're doing here is, you know, it is more challenging, of course, and, and more, um, it does challenge our thinking and it, we will, students will struggle, but all of that is in um, effort to eventually, they're going to be so much better writers and readers um, earlier than 
college, hopefully. And, and isn't interesting that we're, we're saying, you know, we want our students to write these academic five paragraph essays, but then we have people in academia who are like, relax with the five paragraph essays. Mm-hmm. So it, it, that kind of um, bleeds into that earlier point of like, what sort of patterns or norms are we schooling students into? It's like school can really become this artificial process that doesn't even, you know, help them achieve success in higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some of the consulting work that we do, um, I found that a lot of times helping teachers sort of update their mental model and think about things differently is some of the most challenging work because they have been in this stance for so long, especially in a post no child left behind world where they, they felt like they had to get kids to be able to produce that writing because that's what the test demanded. So as we see and, and hopefully move towards a future that is a little bit less oriented towards those things, what strategies do you have for teachers or instructional coaches or administrators that can help encourage and invite teachers to think about what they do as reading and writing teachers a little bit differently? Yeah, I I think, you know, asking ourselves, what are the transfer opportunities and what I'm teaching? So, um, you know, where could this learning go? And, you know, how can we set students up to make those productive connections? So, so framing learning for transfer so that students are already, you know, kind of on the watch for, all right, that this, you know, quick write strategy or, or brainstorming strategy or whatever that I'm learning, you know, I could use this in my science class too. I'm just going to have to change it a bit. Um, helping students to surface their own procedural and conceptual knowledge. So again, mm-hmm. that, that what did you do question? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you know? You know, where, where do these ideas come from? Can you kind of trace them back? Um, and then also, I think, you know, in terms of rhetorical concepts, starting with audience and the rhetorical situation, you know, rhetoric doesn't have to feel like it's something that's out of reach or only for, you know, seniors or for college students, you know, learning to pay attention to the, the cares and concerns of other people. I mean, that's like the most, mm-hmm. you know, that, that has about the highest transfer value of anything that I can think of. And it's going to have payoffs in so many ways. So, you know, what did you do? Uh, you know, how did you know, you know, focus on audience mm-hmm. and frame for transfer. Mm-hmm. That is beautiful. And in case folks are, are wanting, and they should be, Um, more of your beautiful thoughts and ideas about uh, writing, about rhetoric, about literature, where do you recommend they go? And um, what other work would you recommend they check out? Yeah, so for other resources, well, certainly I'll I'll do a quick plug for Stenhouse Publishers. And um, you can find my books, uh, Teaching Literature Rhetorically, Teaching Arguments, and now Writing Rhetorically on Stenhouse's site. You can also follow me on my blog, Rhetorical Thinking. Com. I'm a huge fan of Matt Kay's work. Um, I think, you know, what he has to teach about dialogue is absolutely essential for doing this work. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was a fantastic conversation and um, we appreciate having you on. Yeah. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks so much, Aaron and Trevor. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. If you want to learn more or get involved, check out our website at edtosavetheworld.com and join our Facebook group, Learning That Transfers.